Welcome guys to the official prototyping podcast where we basically talk about everything to do with prototyping. And so in this season, you will learn about different aspects of the methodology, hear from different prototyping practitioners, and even see us try to make our own, all in the spirit of validating your idea with your own data. I'm Jonathan Sun. And I'm Robert Scrub. This episode is sponsored by Exponentially. Supercharge your innovation process and get certified as a world-class prototyper with the official Learn Prototyping online course. Sign up using the code OG100 for $100 off. Learn from Exponentially's CEO and master prototyper, Leslie Berry, and develop your own prototype with personal feedback from Leslie. You will also gain access to the Exponentially app, an enterprise-level tool to help you keep track of your prototypes and join an exclusive Slack community of certified prototypers. Sign up today at www.exponentially.com slash learn dash prototyping comma and use the code OG100 for $100 off. Now our next guest, Patrick Copeland is the current vice president for Amazon ads. Prior to this, he was the senior engineering director at Google and Alberto's former manager at Google. He was famous for allowing Alberto to take a week off at his job to write prototype it and continues to support the movement today. How are you doing today, Pat? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on your podcast. I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to you. No worries, no worries. Um, I do have to ask, I really like the lamp uh, in your background. Like, where did you, uh, where did you get that, where did you get that lamp? It's actually a, a Lifex a light. So it's actually five different lights that are just, you can make them whatever color you want. So I just have them kind of in a, in a rainbow configuration tonight. That's, uh, that's impressive. That's impressive. Is it usually like that? Uh, yeah, I usually have it like doing like a lava lamp actually. So in the background, it's always kind of evolving into some different shape, but lately I've had it as just uh, colors of the rainbow. Although my daughter told me it's not quite rainbow because red should be first, but I did my best. Yeah, I don't remember my colors of the rainbow, so I would have thought that it was just. <laughs> it's been a while since I've I've uh, I've I've actually paid attention to the colors of the rainbow like that. So, um, how's the how's the snow been? I've heard that like I heard that Seattle snowed like crazy the last couple of days. Like, did you get a chance to enjoy it? Well, I don't know about enjoy. I had to go out and for the first time in about five years, uh, shovel snow uh, in order so that I could get down the driveway. Um, my uh, wife was coming back in town and needed to pick her up at the airport. So I spent, I don't know, about 45 minutes out shoveling snow. So, but it was quite a downpour or da uh, snow experience. The, the largest I've seen in a long time. So S Seattle did okay though. Usually Seattle just... If you get like a quarter of an inch, like the whole city uh, falls apart. But this time it kind of like went on okay. So, uh, but the whole country is kind of under a big snow slam right now. So we're we're not the only ones. So I guess even Texas, which is kind yeah. of surprising. I heard because uh, I've uh, I used to live both in uh, Texas and uh, in Seattle. So like I've uh, I've kind of I kind of tracked the weather the weather a little bit uh, in both places out of curiosity and like it was crazy to see like kind of like you know Houston hit like um, hit like you know below thirty and stuff like that. Uh, and it's and, and like I, it's weird looking at the weather forecast. It's like Monday it's hitting below thirty, and by Sunday it's going north back to like seventy two. It's like wow. You, you, on Monday you have to have a big puffer jacket, and on Sunday you're wearing a t-shirt and shorts. Well, and it'll probably be a hundred degrees in three months. You know, it'll be a hundred degrees and ninety five percent humidity. You know, in certain parts of Texas, and it'll be blazing hot. Uh, it's amazing, yeah. The this cold snap. Um, but it only happens once in a while, I guess. So Seattle, Seattle isn't used to snow. It's used to rain. And so I was actually hoping for rain today, which was kind of a strange thing. I'm like, I hope it rains. Uh, so it gets rid of all the snow. I get it. I totally get it. Um, I remember the snow again two years ago. I think it was 2019. That was the one that I experienced in like, and every day like to go and, and when I would have to go shopping, I would have to like, you know, de-ice my car and everything. And because like the and the city was so hilly. So like I had to memorize which streets were like hilly and which streets were like flat. Yeah. 
because like I made the mistake on driving on one hilly up climb on the snow and then my, my brakes kind of got stuck. So my, my, my brakes wouldn't go and my accelerator wouldn't go either. And then like I would hit on nothing and my car would just like kind of zigzag, kind of like yeah. go backwards by itself. And I was like, holy moly, I got to figure something out. Luckily, I've played enough driving video games to uh, figure yeah. out my, figure out how to like drive backwards. But, I, uh, I think that's the that's the key is just to gun it all the time, just to go forward, just gun yeah. it and go through the snow. Especially if you have rear wheel drive, you're you're kind of hosed in uh, <laughs> in deep snow. Oh man! Shout out to anybody that bought rear wheel drive cars in uh, Seattle. You guys made a, a not uh, you guys did not make a good decision. No. <laughs> um. With that being said, let's draw the attention over to kind of like your career and like what you've been doing so far. Um, but to kick it off in like almost a reverse chronological order, um, currently you work as 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 kind of like um, as a vice president for Amazon Ads. How would you compare that job to like um, how you used to be a senior engineering director at Google? You know, uh, different companies, but I feel like a similar set of things that I wanted to accomplish personally. It was all about trying to find places where I could innovate. And so they're both very large and successful companies. And um, sometimes in that situation, you can find yourself, you know, kind of uh, doing a straightforward role that you're expected to. But what I tried to do in both companies was find, were to find places where I could actually do what I wanted to do, which was invent things, try new things, explore, um, and try to take the technology that was existing and, and find new ways to apply it. Um, so the differences between the companies, I would say from an innovation and interest in innovation are about the same. The culture is was is very different between the two companies, especially when I joined Google in 2005, 2006. It was a very, I mean, I'm sure it's a very different company than it is today, but it was a it was a very different company compared to Amazon today. And I'm, you know, I'm sure that that was true. It's true of every company. You go through these evolutions, but you know, Google started from almost like a a college campus where there was a lot of uh, randomness and a lot of projects always going on. And over time, you know, they it kind of realizes they became teenagers. You know, it's like, hey, we need to have a be a business and we need to focus on delivering things that customers are going to, you know, like. And there were many of these failures that we were seeing, like way, I don't know if you remember Google Wave or yeah, you know, every company has these things. And it was, there was just a lot of entropy going on. A lot of, you know, kind of projects that weren't super focused on the customer. Now that I'm just generalizing because there were plenty that were. Search I think is extremely successful, but there were a lot of other projects that were kind of like what, you know, just chaos in the system. People would just dream them up and do them and then kind of like try to figure out how to release them um, and get them aligned with uh, with Google. We, I mean, we had at one point, you know, like hundreds and hundreds of apps, web apps. I don't know if you remember that one homepage where it's like, you know, you click other apps and it would just go to this long list and it just got longer and longer and longer and longer and longer. Yeah, I do. Um, so in some ways, like, I think that that's how companies go when they don't have a focus. And, um, but I, I loved Google. I mean, it's like, it's, it was one of the best companies I ever worked for. And um, I thought the culture was really great. It was very open, but there was a lot of chaos too. And it wasn't the most business oriented company that I, I ever worked for at that time. Amazon is much more uh, business focused. I think there's a, there's a high focus on innovation, but there's also a lot of discussion about what we're trying to do as a company. And once you get agreement on that, there's a lot of alignment around uh, making that happen. So it's, it's a little different in that way than um, Google, where it was more kind of a survival of the fittest in some ways. And you're always kind of living in the shadow of search and ads. Um, 
at Amazon, I feel like that there is a chance to differentiate uh, and come up with new things. And there's actually an interest in doing that beyond what currently exists. So that's, I would say that's one of the big cultural differences. It's interesting that you mentioned the Google uh, failed products because obviously, you know, when, uh, when, when Alberto kind of goes into his like uh, prototyping lectures a lot, he mentions a lot about like Google Wave. Um, for us, like uh, the biggest meme around was uh, Google Plus. <laughs> we would sit around and like memes make memes of it all the time. Like every time, like every time we would like clown each other for like using social networks, like uh, like like we 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 we'd make point fingers to like you know the most awkward or like you know not as sociable guy when we were like younger. We'd be like, hey, I bet he uses Google Plus <laughs> or something like that. Um, just something, just yeah. something like real silly like that. Because like I think Google Plus was kind of. When did it come out? It was like 10 years ago. It was around yeah. 10, 10 years ago, right? Yeah. 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 So there, there's a, it started by this guy named Vic Gondoktra, who, um, you know, was I think he had good instincts at first. There were all of these kind of nascent social networks going on. And he tried to invent this thing called open social which would have basically federated social activity and allowed you to kind of orchestrate it from Google, of course. But it was kind of pulling together everybody's social streams. And then you could say, like, I want my posts to go to this one and this one and this one. And I want to receive you know, posts in the central feed from these. It's kind of like an RSS feed on steroids in a way. Um, and that evolved into you know, hey, Facebook looks like they're really taking off. We better go come up with a responsive product. And so he, um, you know, he did kind of the this this the mortal sin of innovation is like copy someone else. And it was it might have actually been a better version of Facebook than Facebook itself, the way that it was built and the infrastructure, and it didn't have to cut any corners on scaling, but it. The, the problem with it was they didn't build something that people loved and they didn't build the, the you know, the application around a, a use case that people were excited about. And so they were, they kind of did it backwards in a way. And so Alberto and I both witnessed that firsthand. Um, and we were, we were both really disappointed in how it was going. And we knew, I mean, there were many, many people inside the company that thought it was going to fail and uh, we're not excited at all about Google Plus. Uh, but you kind of had to salute the flag to some degree. And I was a part of that flag saluting a little bit. But it was, uh, it was a pretty disappointing failure for the company. And I think a pretty good lesson that you can't just copy somebody else. It's, and it's not about uh, first to market definitely has its advantages, but you've got to build love around your products. And that's um, something that, that didn't happen in that case. But at, at one point there were, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people working on that around the world. And there was just a feeling of dread that it wasn't gonna be a success. And, uh, you know, it's like, if you build it, they will come is, is just so untrue. Um, you know, but it was like a massive soccer stadium that was built very, very well but no games being played, no reason to go there, you know? And so there just wasn't enough attractant to create a social network, just didn't work. At, yeah. at the fundamental level, it was just built backwards, I think. It was interesting because I think, um, I do remember during that time about how much hype was created externally around Google Plus. Like I just remember, you know, seeing all the ads online, you know, making it out to be the next big thing and i think around that time i probably was only in middle school i might have been around 13 or 14 like when it like you know really started like you know trying to make waves and i legitimately thought it could be the next big thing but then that's what your mind gravitates towards like when you're 13 or 14 and then of course like but i tried it out i do remember trying it out a couple of times and like it did feel a little bit clunky compared to facebook but then i always had that thought in my mind like okay maybe it'll get better that sort of thing it's kind of like the the first time ever using snapchat that type of thing yeah uh, snapchat felt really awkward when i first used it too 
but yeah well but you know i think that people will use a, a terrible product interface if it does something useful so like craigslist is not a beautiful user experience <laughs> it's, it's one of right? the worst yeah. uh reddit isn't the best user experience but it has a great function and it brings people together in and solves a problem that people want solved i think in the case of google plus it it just there there wasn't interest in joining a social network from scratch you know there wasn't that bootstrapping of like co college students getting excited about it and it kind of virally exploding it just didn't have that draw and so you 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 need that in order to be a successful product is some amount of people who love it and i i don't think that we we built that product it was it was a copy it didn't differentiate you know it, it like the other day i was i was thinking about the bumble ipo mm -hmm. and about the how why is that an interesting story and a lot of people talk about the ceo is female and she's she's um you know young and she's the first female billionaire um you know to be the a ceo and founder but i think a much more a much more interesting story is that they invented something that people loved in an otherwise commoditized space you know that that company really built a product that was in the dating app space it's filled with a lot of players and they were able to come up with something that was different and was interesting to customers um, and was able to be successful in a in a you know in a, in a kind of like a, a a space where you'd say like oh well that's done you know just like when bra like browsers like everybody was like well browsers are done like do you, why do you want to compete with netscape well chrome was, chrome said like we can do a better one we can integrate more features into it we can make it a you know put the omni bar where you can type searches so i think that that you know when i think about um building a product like you have to come up with something that people really love and in the case of bumble and you know a bunch of google products too they were able to capture people imagination but google plus was not one of those for sure yeah or um i mean what's what's a what's a social product that's gaining a lot of virality today clubhouse <laughs> i think clubhouse is like the new the newest fad uh that everybody's been on that I've spent the last few months uh, hosting events on, and it's been it's been pretty it's been pretty fun, gotta say. Um, I gotta I gotta ask about the the, the prototyping backstory. Okay. Um, I think because uh, I know that um, you kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier. Um, so, what was I think kind of like the origin story of like how prototyping was invented? Well, I guess the the first thing is um, Alberto was interested in coming back to Google, and uh, somehow I became aware of, that, of his interest. And I was like, I love I love this guy. I love this guy on paper. I haven't met him yet, but I think that uh, he'd be really interesting to work with. And uh, when I met him, I mean, you know, Alberto, if you've seen him in any of his talks, he's He's that way in real life like that's his personality he's a hundred percent that way um very exciting very energizing uh positive you know kind of forward and very practical as well and so i, I thought like this guy would do great things and i i'm not sure what he's gonna do and honestly his job was kind of a prototype in some ways because i wasn't quite sure what his job was it was I knew that he would be an interesting person to join the team and to do things at Google, but I really didn't know exactly what his job was. Now it became kind of the, uh, whatever he called himself, like the, the agitator, um, the agitant, I'm not quite sure exactly what he his internal title was, but it was titles at Google you could just make up. And so he just became like the innovation agitant at some point. Um, I was America's top model, by the way. That was actually my formal title at Google. So you could come up with whatever you want. So we kind of invented ourselves, like what we wanted to do in our jobs as well. And so once uh, Alberto had started, we kind of sat down and started doing one-on-ones together. We actually shared an office um, 
and we we just we would we just have talks like what do you think we need to do and alberto started to point out you know like look at all of the the ideas in the google idea database there were and there were literally like 100,000 200,000 ideas and when the press like heard about this stuff like they would just be super excited you know all the geniuses at google there's 200,000 ideas like that's incredible that's awesome like just think about like the amount of potential all those ideas have but you know we realized that the ideas in and of themselves were were really worthless and nothing and that the you know having a database of ideas wasn't really changing the company what we needed were people that could do innovation totally different you know ideation versus uh somebody that can actually take an idea and come up with a you know a concept that's that's somewhat that's doable you know and build confidence and actually deliver it and um through that talking he, he kind of he came up with some talking points and started to work on uh, formalizing this idea and he would he he does this thing um, where he goes off on a retreat uh, every I don't know if he still does it but every year when I knew him um, you know when we worked together he would go on a on a retreat by himself like literally go to a place where there's no no one around him and he can completely be by himself and he just spends time thinking about like things he wants to solve and he's done all kinds of different inventions since I've known him. But one of those inventions was he came back and he said, like, I have this idea, uh, you know, called prototyping. And prototyping, he described it and, and talked about a bunch of stories that he thought were interesting. And uh, we were excited about it. And, you know, one of the things that I told him to do was, you need to write it down because it's too complicated. Uh, to, you know, it, well, I won't say complex. It's very simple, but it's people don't want to hear like a thirty-minute version of something. They want to be able to like read it. They want to be able to do it at their pace. And also, Alberto would never be able to scale to talk to a million people. And so we thought like the best way to do this would be in writing. You could make a video, I guess, uh, but it was like books are a way that you could do it. And so he wrote. He literally did the beginning of prototyping as a prototype where he wrote it up um, on a, you know, on a, a eight and a half by 11 paper, folded it in half. And I think it was like a 50 page book or something um, where he walked through the concepts of prototyping and on the cover of it is actually the, um, you know, the guy who invented the, um, the Palm Pilot who went into his garage and, you know, cut a piece of wood and would walk around with it in his pocket, you know, with a wood stylus and pretend to be using it. And the idea was a, a, a pretendo type because you're pretending that the product exists because building something, you know, can be infinitely um, expensive in terms of your time and in terms of the cost of the company. And so like, how could you, build confidence towards your idea at the soonest possible stage. And that can happen in the um, ideation phase or as you're trying to determine who your customer is. And so in the case of Palm Pilot, the customer was, was, the, was the inventor himself. Like, would I use it? You know, so it's not about like, can I build it? Because can you build it? Google could build anything it wants to build. Google could put its mind to building any product in the world. And like we talked about Google Plus, it put its mind to it and it built it. The question is, is that a good idea? And why are you building it? You're building it for a group of people. Can you identify those group of people and, and build confidence that it people will love it? And I think that that, that was kind of the initial genesis of uh, pretendo typing, which became prototyping because that word was just too long. Um, and he, uh, he went around the company and he evangelized it quite a bit. He talked to people and people got excited. And so little teams started to adopt it. 
and they started to start challenging the process of innovation inside Google. And it just kind of spread like wildfire from there. And it's, it, we did talks about it, like people outside the company um, wanted to hear about it. At one point, uh, there were talks in uh, London, New York, San Francisco, they were just starting to pop up all over the place. So it, it's one of these things that just kind of virally took off um, with, without too much publicity actually. And so that was kind of, I'm, I'm fast forwarding a little bit, but it went from literally a booklet to people wanting to have keynotes about it in, I don't know, maybe six to nine months from the time that he went off on his uh, solo journey to think about it. So the, the ideas were really strong and they kind of stood by themselves. And once I saw the enthusiasm and the, and the effectiveness of those ideas, not only did did I um, get behind him and like encourage him to do this as a full-time gig and also to do it as a full-time thing within Google, um, but I also adopted the ideas myself. And so I'm, I'm not only a hair club for men uh, owner, like I'm a hair club for men user. Like I, I believe in what Alberto is doing deeply and, um, and use it every day. So I, maybe you have some questions about the origin beyond the high level, but it was a really exciting time. I mean, to, uh, to, to see an idea go from literally, you know, uh, a piece of paper in it, or just talking to Alberto to seeing people really wanting it, paying for it. CEOs of companies like uh, Coca-Cola, Kellogg coming to Google and wanting to hear Alberto talk about it. It was it was amazing, but it's it's it just shows like how powerful these these thoughts are and how they unlock people from thinking about innovation in a really traditional way, um, and it inspired a, a innovation all over the world. I mean, it already has um, impacted global companies, and I know I know it has because I've seen the uh, effect of it, and I've talked to people, and I've I've even you know evangelized it now at Amazon. So there are people who pop up all the time and I don't even remember having the conversation, but they say, you know, I've started using prototyping as part of my job and it's helped me so much in the way that I've thought about uh, innovation and how to make it happen. It's really impressive to see like how prototyping has progressed over the last, I think, I think his first ever lecture i believe was like probably around 10 years ago or something like that his his little like youtube videos when he did like his stanford lectures on prototyping it's really impressive to see like how over the last 10 years how it's grown and to become such a global movement to the point where like now there's like a slack community about it there's like people popping all around the world trying to run their own like uh prototyping consultancies i even attempted to do that myself um to varying degrees of success, I think, because um, I think probably certain people are like, you know, better suited to to that than others. Um, yeah, it's, it's really impressive. And, um, and I'm curious to know, um, where do you see prototyping going in the future? Uh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, I, I would just say I use it all the time. So it, where is it going? I mean, it's going where creators are going. So if people who are creative can figure out how to use it, I'll give you a couple of examples. So when I was at uh, Google, I built this product uh, called Google Wi-Fi. It ended up being the one of the top selling mesh routers in the world and uh, got more awards than any other Amazon hardware product actually. So it's very successful. It's still the number one seller on Amazon for mesh routers. And this was in a, a fairly commoditized space of, um, you know, like the, at the time routers were the same chips. They were either Broadcom or Qualcomm and they had, they were wrapped in plastic and had lots of antennas and fancy names like weapons of mass destruction. And uh, they were very, you know, oriented towards kind of the, I would I would guess the the young male gamer purchaser but people all around the world were using wi-fi 
And they were finding it complicated. They were finding it complex because a lot of the technology is kind of rubbed in your face when you set up a router. You know, you have to, this is like going back uh, a few years ago, but you had to type in, you know, an IP address like 192.168.11, something like that. And then you had to know what an SSID was and know whether to have 2.4 gigahertz or five gigahertz networks turned on. And you know, one day I was watching my in-laws set up a new router because they had a, a really old one that, um, and they, they lived on a golf course and they had interference. And I was just watching them set it up and it, it was a total nightmare. Like it was, it was total, it was totally unnecessary how complicated it was. And so I thought like, could, could we simplify that? And so we built a product kind of from paper of, okay, we know that we could build the hardware. We know that we could easily build the hardware. Why don't we just fake the hardware at first? And so what we did is we took a Chromebook and slapped some antennas on it and put a Wi-Fi chip in it and then worked on the software. And you think like, well, what in the heck would the software do? Well, that was where we differentiated. We could make it super simple to set up where you just literally plug it in and kind of wave your phone over it and it automatically authenticates because we know you're signed in on your phone already. We share a secret ultrasonically across the two devices and log you in and the thing just turns on and starts working. Maybe it asks you what your SSID, what you want to name your house and that's it. And the mesh network figures itself out and makes Wi-Fi across the home work. So what was interesting, like why does that story, you know, make sense in this context? Well, we, we could have focused on the hardware first. We could have tried to um, build a, a router that was a little bit better than everybody, but we, we use the same chips that everybody else used. What we focused on was the thing that was really differentiating. And we discovered that by looking at what customers were having a problem with and then building something that they would really love. And so we, we set out with two goals early on. One of them was um, let's build a product that people love, which sounds crazy when it comes to a router because who loves their router? You know, it's like a garbage disposal. If it works, that's great. But if it doesn't work, it, you know, people want to throw it out the window. So could we make it so that people love it and appreciate it? And then secondly, could we revolutionize the space so that other companies would respond to us because Google was never going to be a major router manufacturer like Linksys or something like that. We were just going to build one product that was, you know, superior. So after a few, after about uh, two or three months in the market, we started looking at tweets and people were saying stuff like, I love this product. You know, I absolutely love it. And that was all by design, you know, where we, we did ethnographic studies. We really observed people that were using uh, routers and we started off as cheaply as possible. And every step that we took, we tried to build confidence without investing too much. So literally we started with three people. I, actually we started with like two people and no hardware and slowly built the concept of it uh, by making these micro steps and prototyping every single step of the way. So every level that you could think, like we weren't just prototyping the overall product, we were prototyping every step of the product as we went. And that helped us save a lot of time um, and a lot of pain by correcting and pivoting and continuing to adjust our approach uh, that ended up with a product that people really loved. And I, I do that every day. I mean, it, uh, just the just today, I was talking to a team about some ideas and how we could do it more cheaply and quicker and faster without having to, you know, one of the fallacies I think that sometimes happens is I just need traffic directed to my app or I just need traffic directed to my service and then I'll be successful. And it's it's the wrong way of thinking because you need to, I would rather have very low traffic with people that love it than super, super high traffic with, you know, a lot of people bouncing. And I think that that mindset, you, you know, you have to kind of flip it around for the innovator and say like, okay, it's better for you to figure out how to get people to really 
love something. And so that, you know, that's kind of what Alberto calls the right it for me. I call, I, I using the word love a lot, but it's, it's the right it figuring out that you have a product that's really going to win in the market is understanding the customer and thinking through why you're going to differentiate and trying to do that very, very cheaply and in incremental steps. And in the, in the long run, that just saves you so much energy that you can, um, you can apply to your, your goals as a, as a product to make it successful. So I use it every day. I mean, I, I find it to be um, an, a, a very flexible and adaptable framework as well, because there's, um, you know, like I was saying, at every stage, there's some way to simplify and some way to make it easy to uh, stay focused and to take feedback. And I, I think that's also a really important part of it where you have to be open to listening to what's happening. And so the idea of like testing and probing and testing and probing, it's um, you have to be able to absorb that and say, okay, I'm pivoting here. Because uh, you have to like just sign up that a lot of the your initial ideas may be wrong as you're developing a concept and to hone in on the right set of things um, requires an open-mindedness, you know, and, and at the end of it, you'll, you'll have this success, you know, like let's say that you're lucky and you build a product that really is great. People will look at it and say like, that was amazing. That's an amazing innovation. It just came out of nowhere. And <laughs> Alberto, is, is saying really clearly that it didn't come out of nowhere where it came out of was like, it's like a, an eight year overnight success. You know, it's one of these things where you, and it, it was incrementally built with the customer in mind and with the building the right thing as you went and not building the stadium, you know, like building a, like a, like just having street soccer at first, getting a, a community together, excited about a sport getting more people excited about it, then building the stadium once you have the reason for that stadium to exist. Un, you know, unlike at the beginning, we were talking about Google+, Plus, which in my mind is kind of like an empty stadium without you know, a reason to go there. It's like build something that people really care about. And in my mind, that's, you know, goes back to just principle number one of like build something that customers care, you wanna use. You know, something that really stood out to me about like, just kind of like what you've mentioned is like having a small amount of customers who love your product versus like having a large amount of customers that like use your product and like feel kind of meh, which is interesting because like um, at part time, I do work as an angel investment scout as well. And, um, and something that like angel investors really, really love to harp on is like traction and um and having a and having like hockey stick growth and things like that so like in your point of view how do you think you um balance the idea between this notion of you know having a small amount of customers who love your product versus having a large amount of customers that feel very average towards your product but at the same time knowing that you need volume in order to drive the sort of attention that would um that would bring in the kind of investors that you need yeah well, that's a great question. And I don't think that those comments are perpendicular to each other. Um, so I'm talking about the early stage, you know, as you're doing something, you you want to validate that people really care about it. And so that ne that generally, it needs to be small so you can observe them and you could pick who you're talking to. Now, if you're smart, you're gonna build something that's generally gonna be used by lots of people. You know, so in the case of, of you know, like of Wi-Fi or of like Bumble, you have a large audience that you can go after. Um, but you want to start with a community that you can kind of observe and take feedback from. And so to get the hockey stick to, to occur, I think what you need to do is, is find something that's virally um, exciting for people, like that they will genuinely care about it. And you can't you can't do that with just driving volume to something. Um, so, because really what you're looking for is not the initial usage, you're looking for reoccurring usage. That's, that's the key. So initial, 
like for example, if if Amazon was built on the principle of like people would come in and buy something and never come back, the company wouldn't exist today. But people come back because of the you know the the uh, customer service, the speed of delivery, the um, convenience. You know, so there's lots of reasons why people return to buy more things, and that's a that's a key thing to figure out is uh, people love it, but it's not just initial interest, it's reoccurring interest. So that's why I'm saying like, if you focus on a small community and build from there, you can iterate and figure out like how to parlay it into a bigger and bigger community that expands from that core. But if you don't have a thing that's loved from the beginning, you can't scale something that's like mediocre. Like that hockey stick will never happen. And like there, there's a bunch of examples that we used early on. So like like Twitter, when Twitter first happened, a lot of people came in and were kind of like, ah, this sucks. There's there's nothing to this thing. Like this isn't any good. But they but they did get a lot of usage, but there were a lot of people that stuck. So even though you know maybe 50% of people or maybe higher than that came in and, and used it and left, there were a sustaining group of people that were reoccurring users over time that were enough to um, make that company viable and to have enough traffic. Um, you know, same thing for, uh, well, take a, take a different one. If you're really lucky, you'll come up with an idea that's explosively viral like Facebook. And, but notice how they started is like with the small communities, they iterated, 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 you know, cut corners, you know, it's uh, hacked a lot, um, tried to, to quickly uh, deliver things that their, their audiences wanted by listening to them and growing that audience. And so as they grew that audience, it went from a set of loyal people, excited college students to a broader network of people. People wanted to, to join. They wanted to connect with their friends. Uh, they wanted to to use the platform and get in, and they um, they had to fight people off initially. So it, it it all starts with like a set of a small set of people, and then you you know you want to build a product that's going to be generally interesting to a large audience. But you have to I think you need to hockey stick into that incrementally. Throwing traffic at something it, it is just not the right way to do it. Because you'll you, you haven't identified the primary value to a customer uh, by just driving traffic. It just never works out, in my opinion. I remember learning that the hard way uh, when I um, when I was building uh, when I was working on my first startup. Um, so this was uh, back in the days when I was a student entrepreneur, and uh, and I was working on um, I believe I was working on an app for uh, to to match uh, high school students or best fit universities. Um, this was right around the time when I first learned about how to use like Facebook ads, right? I think uh, it was like, uh, it was a seminar, I think in, uh, in one of the, the, the college entrepreneur clubs that I was a part of, and they talked about how do you use Facebook ads? All right. Step one, create an ad step two, do this and do that. Right. And then, um, I ran it for myself. I think for the very first time that, that day I spent around, I think $50, um, you know, put to, uh, put together some little, um, little copy and then like, you know, posted it. And then I remember the next, uh, I remember like, I think six hours later, you know, checking my Facebook ads. And then I sat there and I looked at the impressions amount and I said, it was like around 104,000, uh, right. And I was like, wow, I think I'm going to be rich. I got 104,000 impressions. And so I realized that impressions didn't really mean a whole lot. And clicks didn't mean a whole lot either. And then, and then the only metric that really mattered was like, you know, how many people like kind of like put their email address down for like sort of like that, that preview sign up, which I got zero of. I got zero of those initial emails. But I think I had like 105,000 impressions and like out of those 105,000 impressions, maybe like 15,000 clicks. And I was just like, I thought I was on the top of the world until I realized it wasn't. So. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, the good news is you did that with 50 bucks instead of $50 million of other people's money or your own money, your friends and family's money. Uh, and you only spent an afternoon doing it and not, you know, five years. 
So I think that's actually a really good example of prototyping as a matter of fact, of like doing it very, very quickly, as scrappily as possible, you know, and, and trying to uh, validate and build uh, confirmation. So that, that that's a great lesson actually, and a, and a great example of doing it uh, fast and uh, failing fast. The funny thing is, was, uh, was though I didn't, uh, I didn't know about prototyping that time and I did end up going through, going forward with building the app. So okay. actually I did, I did do the thing that you weren't, weren't supposed to do. And, uh, I had a team and we went ahead and built the thing and we expected people to come through because we took people at their, um, at their, what's it called? Like not the skin in the game part, but like the part where our birds are talking about, like, don't listen to opinion. We straight, yeah. li- we, we built the whole thing based off of like opinion. So that's a, yeah. that's, that's note to note to the listeners. Uh, don't do that. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. The, uh, the idea of doing like customer panels and customer research um, is, is important. So I wouldn't say that listening to customers and the voice of the customer isn't important because I think it really, really is. It's really the core of it. But I think the thing that Alberto's talking about is like, don't, take it on face value, like go validate that their intent is is real. So people will tell you anything. They'll tell you, you know, like we joked about like, like farcical uh, prototyping examples, like beer for dogs, you know, like generally you probably wouldn't give your dog alcohol, but you you could probably figure out a good prototype for it. Uh, And and customers will probably say like, Heck yeah, I, I'd, I'd buy beer for dogs, you know, but then when it came down to it, would they really buy it and would they really show intent? Uh, I think probably good judgment would get in their way. I don't, maybe not. I don't know. It's hard to tell on that one actually, but it, you have to validate intent. That's the key. Um, so it's, it's not just about, uh, you know, not listening to those voices early because you should. It's just when they say something, you want to test it out. So you move beyond the opinions and get into data. And that's really the important part of it is, um, you know, like you, you could still get, st- like Alberto calls it opinion land. You can get stuck in opinion land forever and never leave it. I mean, and just st- stay in there. And you can have customers telling you that you're exactly right. But the key is like, get off of first base and figure out if what they're saying stands up when you kind of uh, turn that into like an intent. And, um, and I think that that's the trick of prototyping is figuring out those, those early stage intents so that you can validate um, whether what you're hearing is real. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, so a um, couple more questions, really, a uh, couple more questions. Um, what would you say is like um, the most memorable product that you've ever made and why? Uh, let me think about that for a second. Um, well, they're, they're the ones I think that, that helped people. And so I was, um, I was, uh, one of the, one of the, interesting ones was um, uh, we built a an alert tracker for major storms that was hooked into uh, I think it's called NISD it's it's kind of the alerting network for national storms and local storms and one one of the ideas that an engineer had was like what if we built that directly into Android so that when a storm hit, it would alert you. So now, you know, you get amber alerts and all kinds of stuff on your phone. But at the time, this was like a crazy idea, like to actually do a proactive, you know, kind of alert that you were in danger because we saw your your geo position and we knew that something big was happening in that region. We could say like, hey, there's a flood about to happen. Um, well, unfortunately there was a, a tornado um, that was going, went through Oklahoma. And, um, but the good news was that we were able to save a few people's lives because we did the alert early and they got out of the path of the tornado. And we worked really hard to be able to describe what actions to take and what to do. Um, and we, um, 
you know, we, we were, we were lucky enough to actually build software that did something, you know, that really changed people's lives. So that was probably one of the most interesting ones that I ever built was um, with a very small set of people, maybe five or six people, we were able to do that. And we, you know, we earned back our salary in, you know, 10 or 15 lives. So, you know, we, that was, a, that was really fun and exciting to find that out. And we never really publicized that um, and talked about it too much, but it was a, um, a thing that we knew to be true. And uh, it, it was, it's really gratifying to be able to do projects where you're um, doing something for humanity in general. So those, and at Google, like those things were, they weren't low hanging fruit, I would say, but they were available to us because we had, you know, such a ubiquitous platform at the time to um, be able to try things. And so the crisis management system was one of those innovations that really was um, an interesting game changer. And it did benefit people in general. So I don't know, that, that, was, that would be one. Um, definitely Google Wi-Fi. I was very proud of that one. That one was, um, uh, you know, prototyping from beginning to end. And it was one of those projects that almost got killed 50 times. So, you know, one of the things about Innovator that's really not covered in prototyping all that much, but Alberto knows this is true. And probably anybody that's ever stuck their neck out to go build something is that, you know, there are a lot of people that are gonna tell you no and in a big company and in, in, if you have investors, and you have to have a thick skin um, and confidence that you're going to be right. Uh, but uh, almost every cool project I've ever come up with, people told me that that should be killed. Um, and it, the confidence that's required is, is something that you, you like only a certain handful of people have. Not everybody can stand up to their company or their investors and say, I think I'm right, you know, like Elon Musk or maybe Larry Page and Sergey, you know, like we're not going to listen to our investors. We're going to do what we think is correct. Uh, but I think that that's a part that the listeners should definitely think about is that, that if you think you're right, you know, you, you should try to move forward. You should try to protect your idea and give it a safe harbor and enough time to, you know, to quickly iterate and validate. I think you owe that to yourself to, you know, to try to take your idea from the ideation stage before it ends up on the cutting room floor, like those hundred thousand ideas at Google that are sitting in a database, probably still. Um, anyway, those are a couple, I'd say Google Wi-Fi and the crisis management system. Um, but I've been proud of, I don't know, I don't know if anybody's listening on my teams, I've, I've loved working with all of my teams. So it's been a fun ride. It's been, uh, it's been a fun ride at Google and at Amazon. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, what's something that you've been uh, trying to, what's like a personal habit that you've been trying to prototype in, uh, in your own life? A personal habit. Um, let's see. Uh, I've been trying to be more mindful, I would say. That's um, being present. Uh, and being available to people. And so like that might sound uh, ethereal or just kind of abstract, but it it's trying to really connect and be here in the moment instead of um, thinking about other things. Um, and especially over VC, I find that uh, connecting is, is super important and showing that you're listening and trying to show that you are um, understanding and considering what the other person is saying. And it's something that maybe in person is easier uh, to do, I think, but it's uh, on VC, I, I found that I have to be a lot more vocal about it and be more um, in the moment and talking about what I'm thinking. And I find it exhausting actually to be that present, but I, I think as a leader of, of a, a bunch of teams, like that's, super important, at least for me right now, is making sure that people feel like that they're connected with me and that they, um, they're, they're able to be heard and they're able to be understood and considered. And I wanna feel the same way. 
And so the best way I know how to do that is to show that and to be real. And uh, that's, it, I don't know, maybe that's, uh, you know, too, too personal of a story, but that's kind of what I'm focused on right now is just being really mindful of here and now in the moment. And I don't have to prototype that too much, um, but I do, I do reflect on it after a day, you know, like uh, I was, I was just checked out during that meeting. You know, I was just, I was looking at email. I just didn't even care about what anyone was saying. And it's like, what does that say to the other people in the room? I shouldn't even go to the meeting if I'm not going to be super present. So um, I think it's just a, it's an important thing that we don't get, you know, too um, focused into our little bubble of trying to get something done. That really what matters is, you know, the discussion happening right now. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, and of course, it's easier said than done. Because I think sometimes, Absolutely. yeah, our, um, our minds have a tendency, you know, fly across all sorts of things. And, um, and in particular, I think when we're anticipating something, or like, you know, when we're nervous for something, uh, you know, when we're like, when we're, you know, it, it the, the temptation becomes even more, you know, um, kind of like there to, to, to try to think about what's going to happen rather than what's happening in the present and so it's something it's something that i think i've been trying to train myself uh, train myself to do as well is to like you know kind of like focus on one task at a time because i naturally do um i don't know if it's like a creative thing but i naturally do daydream a lot i i i do daydream a ton just like um like especially like i feel like when i'm cooking like i'm always like trying to uh, ideate and like think of like new stuff or like new ways to you know like do things and tack on my existing projects, which is how I end up cutting my fingers when I'm chopping vegetables. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I think that that's really smart is to kind of have a lucid uh, thinking pattern. I'm just watching a show, I forget what it was called on, uh, it was about, you know, are we in a simulation or are we in real life right now? And I, I thought it was an interest, interesting conceptually and curious, but it's like, it's a, uh, it's like, you know, every person can be disassociative to what's happening in, in, you know, it's part of our imagination. We can kind of escape to another reality. And like the matrix is an example and, and uh, our, you know, a simulation, a simulation run by some Uber beings might be another one of those things. But just daydreaming is a totally uh, another way of just being in another world where you kind of let your background threads run. And I think you come up with better ideas actually when it's a background thread, because all of a sudden it'll kind of come to the foreground. You know, it's like, oh, that's a good idea. Um, but unless unless you unless you let your mind kind of go of the of the always running and always being busy, and always, and I think that that's the death of an entrepreneur or an innovator is like running yourself ragged, go, you know, uh, doing execution. You've got to have time to reflect you know, and to step back and be objective. So I think that that's a really good, a good thing is just, I, I, you know, like every innovator I've ever talked to, they have something that they do just like you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. And that, and that lucid thinking is also a perfect avenue to escape, uh, escape the, the doldrums sometimes of the, of the, the of the COVID life, you know, you can kind of like escape to a different dimension. It's like, imagine where, uh where we, where we could be living this sort of existence instead doing this sort of thing and <laughs> it's kind know. of funny though don't you think that if you would have asked people two years ago um do you want more time to do stuff that you want to do people would say yes so now we have like an extra maybe three hours where you're not commuting or you're not having to um spend time uh you know doing things like sitting in an office when you're at lunch or things like that, you can actually go and do a personal thing. So it's, don't you think, I mean, it's an interesting concept of, uh, we kind of complain about how it is all the time, but it's it, it, who wouldn't want more time to be curious and learning new things. But the, the thing I miss the most is like not being interacting with people. I think that's the key thing. It's like, I feel like super lonely during COVID. And it's like, even over VC, you don't have the same connectedness of like just having that hallway chat and, you know, yeah. learning about people. Yeah, I know. I miss that too. I miss that too. Uh, I, I do miss, you know, 
being able to congregate with large amounts of people. I mean, those are the kind of like the environments I feel like I thrive in a little bit, a little bit more. And like, I've had to, and like, I know there's been a lot of like virtual events popping up here and there, but it's like, I, I, I don't go to most virtual events because they, I mean, one, my eyes can only take so much screen time in a day. Like I try to like limit my screen time to a certain amount. And then afterwards, like I try to like play, play puzzles or play crosswords or some, or, or go out for a walk because I literally, I, I feel like if I, if I, if I look at my screen too much, I will get headaches and that's not going to be good for me. Um, so I do, I do look forward to the day where like, I think I'll probably get vaccinated, I think in a few months or something like that. So looking forward to, uh, hope, um, when I'll be able to meet people regularly again. Yeah. Will, will we, uh, will we know how to do it? I think so. I think it'll be like riding a bike. It'll be fun. It'll be like a party almost. It'll be exciting every day. Yeah. We'll have a, have a, have a, have a big party wherever you are. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, this was our podcast with uh, Pat Copeland. Um, Pat, thank you for hopping on. We really appreciated your insights and everything that you had to give. Um, and remember to the, to the listeners, uh, fail Ferrari fast and McDonald's cheap. <laughs>